We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. And welcome to Nats Chat for Thursday, March 18th, 2021, along with Nats Insider, Mark Zuckerman of MassInSports.com. I'm Al Galdi, host of the Al Galdi Podcast. Two weeks from today, April 1st, opening day, Nats Mets, Nationals Park, presumably Max Scherzer versus Jacob deGrom, and we will have fans at Nationals Park. Finally, mercifully, that is official. We'll get into that uh, on this installment of Nats Chat. But Mark, two weeks from today, opening day, are you ramping up or or are you dealing with like arm fatigue or are you going to be good to go come opening day? You know, I had that dead finger period where I was typing in my stories there, like a lot of writers have about that time of spring, but I've gotten over it. I am starting to build back up, and, you know, I, I feel like I'll be ready to cover the full nine innings on opening night. That, that's what you, you strive for. You know, spring training, it's maybe five innings that I, I'm good for, but I, I can keep score for the full nine. I can write for the full nine. I'm, I'll be ready to go. So yours is not like a Blake Snell situation where we got to yank you after five innings. Like, you can go deep into the game. Who's an old school complete? I'm Levon Hernandez. I'm a complete game guy. Uh, yes. uh, yeah, I'm, I'll be there for all nine. You're not pulling me early. No. We need to do a whole pod on Levon one day. I, I feel like you probably could do like an hour and a half of story time just on Levon Hernandez. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, there are some good ones there. Yeah. Once we get into the season, uh, I think there'll be some um, some stories that apply to various things like rain delays and other things during the season that'll work uh, with Levon Hernandez very well. Yes. The ultimate innings eater. He was a ton of fun to have here. Well, we have a lot to get into on this installment of Nats Chat, including the latest for the Nats rotation. John Lester set to make his exhibition debut on this Thursday. That's, of course, a particular note given the uh, Steven Strasburg situation. Our Carter Keyboom struggle is going to lead to an earlier-than-expected call-up for Luis Garcia. And I got a question I want to post to Mark. Why weren't the Nats in on the big free agent fish this past offseason, especially George Springer, do want to get into that. And we are going to play for the first time on the Nats Chat podcast here, Nats Trivia. Mark is going to slaughter me in Nats Trivia a little later on. Just please take it easy on me, if you would. No promises here. With the help of our producer, Tim Shovers, I think we have some good ones. But I even had to turn down a couple that he requested because I didn't even know the answer on some of these or the full answer on some of these. And I didn't think there was any chance that you would. You may surprise me, but I didn't think you would know those. I think this could be an offer. We'll see. I mean, some of these <laughs> questions are brutal. It's all pre-2012 Nats trivia, too, which is like the dark days of the franchise. So, well, that is how we determine true fandom. Yeah, I guess so. I guess so. That uh, definitely could be bloody. Uh, you can tweet us. Uh, continue to keep the feedback coming at Nats underscore chat. You can email us, NatsChatPodcast at gmail.com. If you are wanting to be a part of the movement of the rising tide, 
That is the Nat Chat Podcast for advertising inquiries. Email the aforementioned Tim Showers again, Podcast at gmail.com. But yeah, Mark, you know, these are kind of like the dog days of the exhibition season, but this Thursday is kind of a significant day said to be the Grapefruit League debut. Really, I guess, right, the Nats debut uh, for John Lester off the parathyroid surgery with Lester and also with Steven Strasburg coming off this left calf ailment. Where are we right now in terms of the likelihood of both guys being ready for the start of the regular season? I think we're going to know a lot more in the next couple of days. We're at sort of the critical period here. Let's start with Lester, who, yeah, is finally ready to make his first start. He's probably going to go two innings, uh, 30 pitches, 35 pitches, something in that range. If he's really efficient, maybe they let him take the mound again for the third inning. So obviously he's behind the other guys by a couple of starts, but they feel like he didn't miss too much time. They feel like he had already built himself up enough that it's not like he's starting from scratch here. And so I think it's telling that they've slotted him right in behind Patrick Corbin. So, I mean, they're basically saying you're our number four starter. Uh, he could get two, possibly three starts before the season begins. One of those would maybe have to be in some kind of simulated game or on a backfield because it could be the day after they break camp. But I think they feel like, you know, as provided that his, this first start goes fine, that he should be okay. Maybe he's not ready in his first start to give 100 pitches. Maybe it's more in the 75 to 80 range. Maybe they got to pull him a little sooner. But I think they still feel like that's better than uh, not having in the rotation and having to go with somebody else. So, you know, again, we'll see as he actually pitches now against the Mets. But uh, barring any real setbacks there, I think he's good to go. Strasburg, we're going to find out here in the next couple of days. Again, the way the schedule is set up because of the off day they had Wednesday, because of Lester now slotting into the rotation, it buys him a couple of extra days on Strasburg to let the calf heal and see how he is. If he can start by Sunday of this weekend, that would still allow him to be right in line and be the number two starter behind Scherzer. If he can't, that's where it gets tricky, and now they have to start making some adjustments, whether that means Strasburg gets pushed back to the three, four, five spot and then somebody's got to move up, or whether it even means they have to worry about opening the season on the IL. So he's going to throw and, and test the calf, see how it feels when he lands on it. They'll make their decisions based on that. There's not a whole lot to go off of yet, other than he seems to feel okay. But it, it's really going to be a matter of, as he tries to pitch and land on his left foot, does he feel anything or not? So I think we're about at that critical point. I would say right now, without either guy having pitched, I'm probably more confident in Lester being there for his fourth start of the season than maybe Strasburg being there for the second start of the season. But again, there's time here the next few days to find out for sure. Yeah, and something that can't hurt the Strasburg cause, I don't know how much it helps, but you've got that traditional thing of you have game number one opening night, then you do have that off day that Friday, and then Strasburg, in theory, right, would be slotted to pitch Saturday, so that game number two. So there is that day off between games one and two of the season, Nats, Mets, and Nats Park. So maybe that does help for Strasburg to be good to go come the start of the regular season. We'll see on something like that. Uh, with some of the other latest developments in the Nats rotation. So since we last spoke on the Nats Chat Podcast, Max Scherzer had another dominant outing Monday afternoon, a 4-2 loss to the St. Louis Cardinals, four scoreless innings, seven strikeouts. He threw 45 of his 58 pitches for strikes. So he looks to be in regular season form already. There was, though, a, uh, a hiccup for Patrick Corbin on Tuesday evening. Look, we don't like to make too big of a deal out of these spring training outings, but uh, 4-3 loss to the Miami Marlins, just two strikeouts versus four hits, including two homers and four walks, ultimately four runs in three and two-thirds innings. He had looked pretty good, Corbin had, over his first two outings, so we're not going to go nuts with that, but uh, it is something to be mindful of. Obviously, Patrick trying to bounce back 
from what was a rough 2020 season. There's another development in uh, Nat's camp, and I know you wrote about a guy who maybe could end up uh, being impacted by this development. So Carter Keboom does continue to struggle. And I know you guys talked to Luis Garcia the other day. Ideally, okay, and you know, with Keboom, we've discussed like how long of, of a leash is he going to have? You know, what exactly is the Nats' true commitment to him as the everyday third baseman? But ideally, do the Nats want Garcia to play at the major league level at all this year? Or in their mind, do they want Garcia to play at the minor league level for the entirety of the 2021 season? Yeah, that's a good question. I think if you were to ask them and they said deep down in their best case scenario that he would play the whole season in the minor leagues because that meant that Keyboom and Turner and Castro were all healthy and productive at the big league level. And so they didn't need to call on Garcia. And, you know, keep in mind the way they always treat these young prospects. He's only going to be in the big leagues if he's playing regularly, almost every day. They don't like putting a guy like that on the bench in the big leagues. So they want him playing at AAA every day as opposed to, you know, two times a week at the big league level. So, yeah, I think they would hope that those other infielders are all doing well and you don't need to worry about having a replacement for them. And then Garcia can go develop in the minors. Now, that said, they know that things come up over the course of the season, big and small. And they certainly hope that he is playing well enough to push the issue and make a case for himself to be at the big league level. And so I think we will probably see him at some point, just war of attrition, guys going down, whatever the case may be. But I don't think it happens opening day, even if Kibum continues to struggle. It would require, like we've talked about, moving Castro to third base where he hasn't gotten any reps this spring. They don't believe that's his best position. It puts Garcia under a big spotlight that maybe they're not sure he's ready for at this point. So I do feel like, you know, barring catastrophe here, I, I still think Keboom is the guy on opening day. And then it's a question of how long is the rope with him. And then they probably want to let Garcia develop until they know they have a spot for him every day and until they feel like he really is ready for it. Yeah, I mean, Garcia is a well-regarded prospect. He's not, though, like one of these Soto Robles-type prospects. MLB Pipeline does that top 100 prospects ranking every so often. He wasn't on the top 100 prospects the last time that came out. So I think, you know, maybe that's something to keep in mind, too. Like, we as Nats fans and observers know who he is, but it's not like he's this uber prospect who you're like, oh, my God, we can't wait until he's at the major league level. But he could obviously end up being quite good for the Nats. So I, I wanted to run this by you because, you know, thinking about, okay, you have this Carter Keyboom situation. We discussed how the Nats, they are certainly leaning on Keyboom and Robles to take these next steps forward. They are leaning on Schwarber and Bell to have these bounce back years. A lot of like ifs, maybes, 50-50 type situations for the Nats with that everyday lineup this year. The Nats, as best as we can tell, we're not in on any of the big fish in free agency this offseason. And... I personally, I I felt like they should have been in on like at least George Springer. I thought Springer would have made a lot of sense. You could have put him at right field. You would have had two center fielders patrolling your outfield. You could have had like a super defensive outfield with Robles and center Springer and right. Springer is a very good defensive outfielder. He's obviously a big bat. So that would have met that need of trying to beef up the lineup and get another big bat there for Soto and Trey Turner. And, you know, you could have kept Soto in left field, which, you know, defensively speaking, might be where he's best suited. Best we could tell they weren't in on Springer. He didn't end up getting like gargantuan money from Toronto. Six years, $150 million. I mean, that's obviously big money to you and me, but in the world of baseball, it's really not that much. It's like $100 million less than what Anthony Rendon got from the Angels. And I'm just kind of like, man, there wasn't a lot of conversation about the Nats being in the mix. And it's not just Springer, like JT Realmuto. For years, we heard about Mike Rizzo wanting to trade for JT Realmuto. You didn't hear about the Nats being in on him. Even like Trevor Bauer. I mean, I know he can be kind of quirky, but he's really blossomed over the last you know year or so here. 
the Scherzer contract is coming off the books. I mean, to me, there was an argument for Bauer. And I guess I just look at it, Mark, like, okay, you have the Nats, veteran team, older team, win now team. And I'm like, okay, if you're going to be a win now ball club, and if you're going to be in it, and like, it's really about trying to win now, why wouldn't you go all in? Like, you don't want to be half in, you want to be all in. Like, to me, in baseball, you're either in or you're out. And that's clearly are in. I just wonder about that. Should they have been more in? Should they have made a bigger splash in free agency this offseason? So I think it's a really interesting point to bring up. And it's one that I know a lot of people thought about all winter long. And I thought about it myself and trying to gauge, okay, how in are they this year trying to win? And I felt like based on the way that Mike Rizzo talked about what their needs were going into the offseason, it was a big bat. That was the thing we heard. And it didn't necessarily have to be at one position or another, but we knew they needed a corner outfielder. And typically those are big bats. We knew they needed a first baseman, but I was thinking less in terms of the biggest bat coming there. And so you look at who the outfielders were and Springer was the name that jumped out first and foremost as somebody that I thought would make a really good fit on this team. Now, I think the feeling was they knew they had multiple needs. They needed a corner outfielder. They needed a left-handed first baseman at least. They needed a catcher, at least to share the job with uh, Jan Gomes. They needed a number four starter. They needed a left-handed reliever. That's a, you know, a good, pretty significant list there of needs. And I think the feeling may have been, if we go all in at one of those, then is that going to limit our ability to get to fill the other positions in a way that we think is satisfactory to fill out the roster? Now, we can debate over that or not, but I do think it's fair to say that while ownership did provide them a budget that was not hugely restrictive, it was not just go for broke. This was not what the Mets did over the winter. And so while they may have had it in their budget to sign a George Springer, they then maybe would not have been able to add Brad Hand and John Lester and then ultimately traded for Josh Bell. When you add all that up, it might have gotten them a little closer to the luxury tax number that they weren't going to touch. So I think what their philosophy in the end was Rather than shooting for the moon on one position, let's try to make second tier, let's call them moves at a bunch of positions to fill all those needs and hope that the collective result of all that is better. Now, we'll see. We'll see. Because the problem is Josh Bell is not a sure thing. He could turn out great or he could turn out 2020 version of himself. Same with Schwarber. Could be great. Maybe not. Lester, we'll see who he's going to be. I think Hand is a pretty safe bet that he's going to be good. And we know that the catching position, they should be fine, but we know they're not going to be you know, real Muto level star power back there. So let's see. But I think that was probably the philosophy there, as opposed to spending really big at one spot, go ahead and spend less at each of the positions and hope that collectively that would be enough to help the team win more. And it may well work. And the Nats could look like geniuses at the end of this thing. I think my biggest concern, though, with the Nats is they kind of profile like one of those, you know, 82, 83, 84 win teams. Like, you know, they're too talented to like totally fall off the cliff. But they're also not a team that you look at and you say, boy, this team just reeks, you know, 95 wins. Like they don't come off that way. They come off like one of those teams in that no man's land of like low to mid 80s win total. And that can be kind of the worst place to be where I really feel this way in baseball now. It's like, if you're not winning 100, you need to be losing 100. And I know I'm kind of overstating it that way, but it's like, you're either all in or you're all out and you're getting back all in down the line. And, you know, trying to kind of have it both ways where you spend, but you don't spend too much. I just feel like that can be rather dangerous. Now, look, the learners, you know, you can complain about a lot of things. They do spend on payroll. You know, every year the Nats are are a top 10 payroll team these days, and the learners deserve a lot of credit for that. So this isn't like, oh, the learners are cheap. You know, they don't spend enough money. They spend a ton of money. 
But I guess I'm just kind of like, you know, in for a dime, in for a dollar. If you're going to have, I think their projected payroll is somewhere around $200 million again. That's substantial. I mean, is it at the end of the world if you go up to 205, 210, whatever it ends up being, and you add a bat like Springer? And again, with Scherzer's contract coming off the books, it's not like you're going to be, you know, inundated with all these hundred plus million dollar deals beyond this year. You know, it was interesting to me, Mark, because I know Rizzo did that press session with you guys months ago. And, and I remember when he said this, how he talked about the budget that he had been given for the offseason. And he said, this is on December 15th. He said, with conversation with ownership, we feel we feel that we have the, the budget to get a championship caliber club. So I, I don't know if you remember him saying that. Oh, yeah, I definitely remember that quote. Okay. So what do you think he meant? Do you think like that was a wink wink of I'm being restricted here? Or do you think that was no, I've got some money to play with here? I think that was a safe way of saying, I have not been instructed to cut payroll. I've been given authority to spend some money, but maybe not go for broke the way, like I said, a few teams have done. And here's another point that ties in with it that also has to do with this. I think it's interesting. Basically, everyone they got is on a short-term one-year deal. I mean, Josh Bell has two years of control before he can become a free agent. He hasn't reached free agency yet. The other guys are all one-year deals. And I think that was a little bit telling as well that maybe they were, Rizzo felt like he could invest that much money for this year. But at that point, with them still not knowing what kind of fan allowances they would have for 2021, and still not really knowing what the revenues are going to be like this year, and not knowing what the CBA is going to be like a year from now, and what the sport's going to look like in 2022, that maybe the issue was we can try to spend some money to win this year, but we can't necessarily do anything that could hurt us financially long-term beyond this year. And that's where the big-name free agents do come into play because Springer you know, was going to get a lot more years than that, You know, Real Muto. Those, all, all those guys are getting longer-term deals, and maybe that had something to do with it, that it was, okay, you know what? Here's a team that we still feel like we have the core in place because we have Scherzer, Strasburg, Corbin, and Soto and Turner offensively, that this is a team that can win again. But we also know that we're not, we don't have all these guys forever. And maybe at some point here, we are going to have to make that transition into a new phase, the organization. So let's go for it this year, but not do so in a way that could hurt us down the road and prevent us from making other moves down the road. So I think that may have had part of a factor in how they went about this as well. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring podcasts on the Blue Wire Network. 
Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System yet, then you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. Wherever you are across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE System technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's unified, U-N-I-F-Y-D, healing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system. Yeah, and you do wonder, had the Nats been able to have a proper season after a World Series title and reap the financial windfall that is being a reigning defending World Series champion, i.e. major bump in season ticket purchases, major bump in merchandise sales, that added revenue, if maybe that would have made them more likely to spend big this past offseason, you know, obviously we'll never know the answer on something like that. So speaking of fans and, you know, reaping the windfall of uh, having won a championship, we are going to have fans at Nationals Park. Our long saga is over. The Nationals are going to be having 5,000 fans or up to 5,000 fans for games at Nationals Park to begin the season. The Nats uh, making the announcement very late on Monday night. I got to tell you, I was happy to see this. I was actually pleasantly surprised that the number can go up to that. I, I wasn't sure what to expect with the way DC has been. I think 5,000 fans is, is a reasonable, healthy number. That's a good job. I'm, I'm excited for this. Yeah, I think that was um, the right number based on what we've seen from other cities. They are in the lower end. It's basically on par with like what New York and Boston are doing. They're certainly not at the 20 to 25% capacity that uh, the majority of teams are at. But as we've been saying all along, D.C. has been more restrictive than other cities, and, and I can understand why. To me, actually, the most encouraging development out of all of it was at least the national saying, and we'll see what happens, but the national saying that they will re-examine this with the district in hopes of increasing it for the second homestand. So right now, all we know for sure is the first homestand, six games against the Mets and the Braves at capacity of 5,000. Then they go on the road for a week. Then they come home to face the Diamondbacks and Cardinals, and they are at least hoping that they can actually increase the number. I'm sure the district is going to look at it and say, okay, let's see how this works. The first homestand, is everybody safe? Does it seem like there is more room to put people and space them out and everything be fine? Then maybe they go ahead and give the approval to expand. I'm not saying I'm counting on that happening already for the second one, but that to me was an encouraging, an encouraging thought. I also think it's really fascinating now how do you figure out who the 5,000 are? This is a complicated process. They've said it's going to go first to their Nats Plus members. Those are season ticket holders. And with the priority there among those who essentially have the largest plans or have been season ticket holders for the longest time. So in one respect, I think that's great. These are your diehards. They are the ones who have supported your team the most through thick and thin over the years. They deserve to be first. But what I also wondered is if there are more than 5,000 who want in, is it going to be the same 5,000 every game that first homestand? Or are there 5,000 people can come to half of the games and then a different 5,000 can come to the other half of games? And I honestly don't know how that's going to work out. It's a really complicated situation, and, and I don't envy the people who have to try to sort that out. 
Yeah, that's not going to be easy. You know, I was thinking about this too, and obviously you're not going to have this initially with just, say, 5,000 fans in the ballpark, but I remember how crowds were, especially in New York, after 9-11 and how there was this, like, you know, communal energy that was in the park. Like, there was that very famous Mets-Braves game. Mike Piazza hit a walk-off homer. Lopez wants it away. And it's hit deep to left center. Andrew Jones on the run. This one has a chance. Home run! And uh, I guess it was still Shea Stadium at the time, if I'm remembering correctly. It was on fire when he did that. And, you know, I know this is different in a lot of ways. And like I said, it's only going to be 5,000 fans. But I wonder, especially as ballparks become more and more filled with fans, if you're not going to maybe have that, like have these hot crowds, electric crowds, you know, people tired of being shut down, tired of not seeing each other being back at sporting events, you know, we took this for granted and and I don't know that we'll ever do that again. I think that could be kind of a cool thing about this baseball season that, you know, lively crowds, people really happy to be back out there. I think that could be maybe a very nice thing about this upcoming year. That's another reason why I'm glad in a way that they are letting the real diehards in first, because you know, those are the people who are going to care the most and will be in it the most. These are not going to be corporate types. These are not going to be casual fans. So I like that. I'm a little disappointed. I just saw something that said that apparently MLB is still going to require teams that are under a certain capacity to play in the piped noise to help boost it. I don't want that. I I think 5,000 real fans can make more than enough noise. And and why would you try to drown that out or, or alter it in any way? I'd be more than happy to hear what 5,000 season ticket holders have to say to salute their in their minds, defending world champions that they're finally getting to see for the first time. So I, we'll see if that how that plays out. But I just saw something uh, a little while ago about that. Uh, one other quick point. You mentioned the uh, famous Mike Piazza home run at Shea Stadium after 2001. Do you know who the Braves' first baseman was? And you can see him as Piazza rounds first base on the home run. Who was the Braves' first baseman that night? 2001. Who was it? A guy named Davey Martinez. Is that right? Davey. Proud of the boys. Davey. Yes. So go 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 watch the video of it. You'll see him as uh, Piazza rounds first base. Davey says it's still to this day one of the coolest moments he's ever been a part of. And, you know, he's on the visiting team. And that was like a game changing home run that was going to cost his team the game. And he's still and they all got swept up in it and understood what that meant for New York. And for that one night only weren't so upset to be losing a game. That's really cool. I did not know that. That's excellent. Well, that's a perfect segue to get into our trivia right now. What could be a bloody, bloody mess. We'll see what ends up transpiring. So these questions have been provided to us by our sadist of an executive producer in Tim Shovers. These are all questions having to do with the Nationals pre-2012. So, I mean, everyone listening probably knows this in case you don't, but 2012, that was the turning point season. That's where a bad team for a while 2011, they were like, okay, like kind of like right around 500. And then 12 was when things took off and they started making postseasons and being a winning ball club. So these are the days of, you know, Manny Acta and, I don't know, John Patterson, Esteban Loiza, you know, on and on we can go with all the names of the past. Are you ready? I am ready. And just for the record, I came up with a couple of these on my own because I thought the questions that Tim came up with were going to be a little beyond your capabilities. They were even a little beyond my capabilities. So I tried to come up with a couple others that I think maybe you've got a, a shot at. Okay. All right. Question number one for Mark Zuckerman on Nats Chat Podcast Nationals Trivia. In 2006, Alfonso Soriano led the Nats with 46 home runs. Who was second on the Nats in home runs that season? <laughs> Ooh, okay. Nick Johnson had a huge offensive year, but I 
don't think he hit as many homers as Ryan Zimmerman, who was the runner-up for Rookie of the Year. So I will say Ryan Zimmerman, and I'm hoping I'm not wrong about that, and I'm hoping that it wasn't actually Nick Johnson. Ah, you should have stuck with your gut. It was Nick Johnson. (laughs) A very good national in the dark days, although a Nat Wright who was hurt constantly during those dark days. That's a season that Al Galdi would love. His Nick Johnson's 2006, huge on-base percentage, big OPS. There's a case we made that that was actually a better offensive season than Alfonso Soriano had. Yeah, he was one of those like on-base guys back at a time when not everyone was appreciating that. So he was good. He just couldn't stay healthy. I mean, that was always the issue with Nick Johnson. And yes, uh, to your point, Mark, Nick Johnson in 06 had an OPS plus of 149, blowing away Zimmerman's 114. So Johnson was outstanding. That was a, a very good season. That was, yes. Well done. All right. Are you ready? I think so. Let's see if you, let's see if you can handle this. All right. Here we go. What pitchers have started on opening day for the Nationals other than Max Scherzer, Steven Strasburg, and Levon Hernandez? Okay. Uh, John Patterson. That is correct. 2007. Uh, there are three total. Matt Chico. <laughs> Not quite. <laughs> That's too bad. He may have been the number two starter uh, one of these years, but no, not opening day. I was hoping Matt Chico would be the guy. Um, we'll move this along. Did Jordan Zimmerman somehow ever get an opening game start? He did not. These are going backwards. I'll, I'll, I'll give you a little hint. You had the right uh, right arm with Matt Chico, the, the, being the left arm. What am I not thinking of? One of them's a little more obvious, I think. The other one is a big pull. I, I'm sure I'm going to be angry. Do we need to give the uh, Family Feud X you know, eh, sound? John Lannon, oh. twice, 2009 and 2010. And here's the out of nowhere, shocking opening night, 2008, first game at Nationals Park. Who threw the first pitch at Nationals Park? That would be none other than Odalis Perez. Ah, the immortal Odalis. These are the names of yesteryear. I love hearing these <laughs> names. All right. Second question for Mark Zuckerman on our Nats Chat podcast, Nationals Trivia. Here we go. Oh, actually, uh, <laughs> one of the questions from Tim actually just covered that. All right, we'll go with this. Oh, <laughs> was it an Odalis Perez question? Yes, it is. It was who started 2008 opening day. That would be Odalis Perez. Oh. So there you go. Come on, Tim. You got to do harder than that. You knew I would get that one right. All right. Uh, okay, let's go. This is, this is a very difficult one, but I'll ask it. We'll see. We'll have some fun with this. Who were the four Diamondbacks that came to the plate against LeVon Hernandez in the first inning of the RFK 2005 opener. Oh, oh. Yeah, that, I mean, that's just lethal. Okay, now, I Craig Council was the leadoff hitter. He was the first batter to face him. And I, I feel like this is one of those that these are actually like prominent names. These are guys who were known for a few things. Like, these aren't just no-name guys. So Craig Council is definitely on that list. I will say, is it 2005 Diamondbacks? Oof. Um, I'll say Junior Spivey, who wound up playing for the Nationals that year. Uh, no, he was not among them. No, yeah, he was a Diamondback at one point. I can give you a hint, though. One of these guys was once confused for Bryce Harper by Dusty Baker. In other words, Dusty called Bryce by this guy's first name. Oh, 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 okay. And this guy did become a National in 2006. That'd be Royce Clayton. Yes, yes. Okay, <laughs> all right. We got that. Uh, I don't think Luis Gonzalez was still a member of the Diamondbacks at this point. Well, maybe he was. I'll, I'll say Luis Gonzalez, number three hitter. Yes, good job. Okay. Good job. And the last one, I want to say Matt Williams, but there's no way he was still playing for the Diamondbacks at this point in 2005. So I will say, um, 
Rubio Dorazo. Ooh, that's a good one, but Troy Gloss, the former Angel. Oh, okay. All right, so those are some prominent names, though. Those are some real names. When Dusty would call guys by the wrong name, that was so great. And when he called Bryce Harper Royce, I'll never forget that. <laughs> yeah, a lot of similarities between Royce Clayton and Bryce Harper as players. Yeah. All right, uh, I'm worried that you're not going to know the answers to any of these, but we'll, we'll try one, one more here that I, I think you're going to get at least half of this one right. Two correct answers. Who were the two players that the Nationals got from the Twins in the 2010 Matt Caps trade? Well, I know one, Wilson Ramos. That is correct. The other one must be someone of consequence. That's why this is a question. Am I right in saying that or no? <laughs> no, it's complete inconsequence. And this is why I had no... I, Joe Testa's family cares. That's why we're, we're mentioning him. Joe Testa. I could not tell you anything about Joe Testa other than the fact that he never became a big leaguer for the Washington Nationals. Well, Ramos, we know Ramos. That's one of the great early trades by Rizzo. What a steal that ended up being. And the Twins thought they were, uh, that Ramos was blocked at catcher because they had a guy named Joe Maurer they thought would be their catcher forever. And Ramos was never, they liked him, but they just didn't think there'd ever be a place for him. Oh, actually, it turned out there would have been a place for him. They absolutely regret that move years later. By the way, what did you think of the Noah Syndergaard, Wilson Ramos stuff with the Mets? Did you follow that at all as that was going down, how Syndergaard yeah. apparently just hated Ramos? I thought it was uh, overdone, overblown a little bit. I would say that for the most part, Nationals pitchers liked Ramos. I mean, he caught several no-hitters of uh, Max Scherzer's, of Jordan Zimmerman's. You know, is he a great defensive catcher? No. Did he have some issues with things like pitch framing? And Wilson's biggest issue actually was literally catching throws, which you would think would be a thing that would not be difficult for a catcher to do. But no, I, I in my experience, I, I found that pretty much all the Nationals pitchers liked him personally, thought he called a good game. They knew he had some deficiencies back there, but nothing that made them like ever say, no, I do not want to pitch to this guy the way that Syndergaard suggested. As far as Wilson, like, I have nothing but respect for the guy. It doesn't change our relationship uh, between one another. I mean, he busts his every day. Uh, I have ultimate respect for him. But my only main concern was just having an open dialogue with the uh, front office and coaching staff of my initial frustration of why there was uh, these extreme splits with different catchers. Do we want to try one more, or are we going to stop there? All right, we'll call. We'll 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 stop the fight. <laughs> the referee is waving it off. Do we, do we do we have a winner or this or this a uh, uh, just one of those uh, nobody just a draw? I don't even know if a draw counts. What is the terminology for what just happened here? I think everyone has lost in having to listen to this for the last few minutes. <laughs> <laughs> I think, I think if if any of our listeners out there actually got them all right, I don't know how we get evidence or proof of that. But props to you, and and you are the winners today if you got all those answers right. Yeah, no, I'm sure we got some sickos who got them all right. Absolutely. You, we got some great Nats fans listening to this podcast, no doubt. Well, anyway, keep the feedback coming. We love hearing from you guys. We are closing in on the start of the 2021 season at Nats underscore chat on Twitter and Nats chat podcast at gmail.com. For Mark Zuckerman, I'm Al Galdi. We'll talk to you next time on the Nats chat podcast. The throw has gone down to second base. The ball is in the glove of left-hander Odellis Perez. This is the opening of the baseball season here in America right now. I'm with you. And we are underway. Foul ball, strike one to Kelly Johnson. This is the story of the one. 
As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.